ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 21. So Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21. Next Sunday, we will uh, begin looking at the, the big uh, passage on marriage that closes out Ephesians chapter 5. We'll spend at least a couple of weeks there, but, but today we need to look at these, uh, first, the, these four verses before we get there. So looking at Ephesians 5, verses 18 to 21, and I know that we have been uh, in and out of Ephesians over the last several weeks, and so let me attempt to remind us of, of the immediate context of Ephesians 5 while you're turning there in your Bibles, that you know, the first half of Ephesians is chapters 1, 2, and 3, the second half, chapters 4, 5, and 6, and, and once we turn from the first half to the second half, once we turn the page from Ephesians 3 to Ephesians 4, then we, we noticed uh, quite clearly that Paul had moved from uh, laying out the, the rich and deep and wonderful doctrine that we see in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of all that God has done in us and for us in Christ and through the work of the Holy Spirit to the, to the practical application and implications which flow out of this rich and deep and wonderful doctrine and theology that we see in, in chapters 4, 5, and 6. See, beginning with the, the very first verse in, in chapter 4, Paul, has, Paul began to, to call us to, uh, to evaluate and be mindful of how we are walking. And by that, by walking, he means how we are living, how we're living the Christian life. We've been talking about that over the last several, several sermons that we've been in in Ephesians chapter 5, but Paul calls us to, to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. He calls us to, to no longer walk as the Gentiles do, to no longer walk, to no longer live the way we used to live, to realize that, 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 that the old you, before you came to know Christ, is dead, buried, and gone. That's not who you are now, therefore be who you are. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. No longer walk as the unbelieving Gentiles do. No longer walk, no longer live as you once did. Paul calls us to, to walk in love. He calls us to, to walk as children of light, to walk in light. And that the last time we were in Ephesians 5, he called us to, to walk in wisdom. To walk not as unwise, but as wise. In our text today, Paul's not going to use that word walk, but he's still continuing to, to call us, to, to challenge us, to honestly evaluate how we're walking, how we're living. And our passage today specifically focuses on walking in the Spirit, or living in the Spirit, or being filled with the Holy Spirit. So as I read the passage, listen for what Paul says about what it means to be filled with the Spirit, and what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. 
And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at these, these four verses under three headings. And the three headings are, are questions that we're going to ask and answer. We're going to ask and answer, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Second, how does this happen? How are we filled with the Spirit? Third, what does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Or put another way, what are the marks of a Spirit-filled church? So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How does it happen? And then what does it look like? What are the marks of a Spirit-filled church? So first, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? So please look with me at verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So if we're going to understand what what Paul means by filled with the Spirit in verse 18, I think we first need to to think about and and reflect on the significance of what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out in the once-for-all-time event on the New Testament church to indwell each Christian, to empower each Christian, to unite each Christian to Christ. That's important for us to understand what happened in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, and that initial outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the church. If we're going to understand this, this ongoing reality of being filled with the Spirit that we're directed to pursue in Ephesians 5, verse 18. And to help us understand that, I want to read to you a quote from a Professor Richard Gaffin, Jr. He says, The gift of the Spirit is nothing less than the gift to the church of Christ himself. The glorified Christ, who has become what he is by virtue of his sufferings, death, and exaltation. In this sense, the giving of the Spirit is the crowning achievement of Christ's work. Pentecost is his coming in exaltation to the church in the power of the Spirit. It completes the once-for-all accomplishment of our salvation. Without it, that work that climaxes in Christ's death and resurrection would be, strictly speaking, unfinished, incomplete. Okay, so put another way, the, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2 is an unrepeatable event in the history of salvation. So once for all time, unrepeatable event in the history of redemption. It's helpful to think about what happened on Pentecost and the outpouring of the Spirit the same way you think about other unrepeatable events in the history of salvation, like the birth of Christ, His death, His resurrection, His ascension, and the outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. See, it's an unrepeatable, once-for-all-time event in the history of salvation, not a step in what theologians call the ordo salutis. It's an event that happened in the history of redemption, not a a, a step in the order of our salvation. It's It's not a next step in our Christian experience. You see, this means that it would be a misunderstanding to read Acts 2, the Acts 2 account of Pentecost and that once-for-all-time event of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as if it expresses the normative experience of all Christians, as if each and every Christian is supposed to seek some, some special experience of the Holy Spirit which takes place after their conversion to Christ. 
You see, to expect such a second blessing or, or special experience of the Holy Spirit is to misread, to misunderstand, and to misapply Scripture. Another way, whenever you come to know Christ, you get the person of the Holy Spirit. All of Him indwells you, sealed with the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. However, there's another way to misread, misunderstand, misapply Scripture's teaching regarding the Holy Spirit. And this is perhaps even more relevant for those of us in this sanctuary. See, and that is to agree that the Holy Spirit's regenerating work is critically important for our regeneration, for our conversion, for our salvation, but then to go forward functionally living as if the Holy Spirit sort of vanishes, sort of just kind of settles into the background, not really playing a big role in our ongoing Christian experience and Christian life. You see, if you're a Christian, then you already have all of the person of the Holy Spirit that you can have. Don't, don't think of being filled with the Spirit like pouring water into a cup to fill it all the way up to the very tip top, just adding a little bit more. He's already dwelling within you. And to be a Christian is to be in union with Christ, and to be in union with Christ is to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, who's at work in and through you by God's grace, and He's at work in and through you from your regeneration, from the moment of your conversion, all throughout your Christian life, all the way to your final glorification. So dear Christian, the Holy Spirit should not be the, the forgotten member of the Trinity for you, for us. I mean, we're in towards the end of chapter 5 in Ephesians, so remember what Paul's already told us about the, the work of the Holy Spirit in, 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 the, in the lives of all true Christians. Think about what Paul's already told us. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's no need to be seeking out some, some second or additional spiritual blessing of the Holy Spirit. We've already been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In Ephesians 1, verses 13 and 14, we read, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. That's Ephesians 1. In Ephesians 2, verses 18 to 22, we read, For through Him, through Christ, we both, that's Jews and Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews, for through Christ we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I mean, you hear all of this about what the Spirit has done and what he is doing in your life, dear Christian. That's Ephesians 1 and 2. In Ephesians 3, verses 16 to 19, we read that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Then in Ephesians 4, verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, so think about all of this. Paul's already taught all of this before he comes to our passage. See, to these Ephesian Christians who already have the indwelling Holy Spirit, who, who have already been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, who've already been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who already have access in the Holy Spirit to God the Father, who are already being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, to these Holy Spirit indwelt, Holy Spirit sealed Christians, Paul says in our text, Ephesians 5 verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. You see, whenever he says, but be filled with the Spirit, he's not referring to some, some special second blessing or getting more of the person of the Holy Spirit because you can't. And, and Paul, Paul's speaking to the whole church. He's speaking to every Christian. So don't think there are these two categories of Christians. There are regular Christians, and then there are Spirit-filled Christians, as if there are these two different categories. So what does it mean for Christians living on this side of the once-for-all-time event of Pentecost to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Okay, well, look, look at verse 18. Notice this comparison and this contrast. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, first thing I have to say, is that the verse does not say do not drink wine. It says do not get drunk with wine. So you see, Paul is not condemning the drinking of wine or other forms of alcohol. Rather, Paul's condemning drinking wine to excess, to self-indulgence, to, to drunkenness. But, but don't miss the point that Paul's making by comparing getting drunk with wine, which is a sin leading to debauchery. He's comparing that with being filled with the Spirit, which is something that all Christians are instructed to do. Okay, so how are we to understand Paul's point? Okay, well, think about this. When a person is drunk... We often say they're under the influence, right? They're under the influence of alcohol. And Paul says, don't do that. Do, do not drink so much alcohol that you lose control to the alcohol, because to do so would be a sin, and it often leads to greater and deeper sin. It often leads to greater and deeper debauchery. It often leads to greater and deeper reckless living and immoral living, as, you know, as, as we often say, that, you know, that sin never, ever takes us where we want to go never makes things better. It always takes us further than we plan to go, and it costs more than we plan to pay. So Paul says, rather than get drunk, rather than put yourself under the influence and control of alcohol, rather than all of that, be filled with the Spirit. Okay, well, Richard, but what does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? That's a good question. I'm glad you keep asking that. Okay, Sinclair Ferguson makes the point that the specific form of the verb fill that we find here in Ephesians 5.18 is unique in the New Testament. That this is the one time where we find this exact grammar and syntax in the original Greek text. That we see that it's present tense, imperative mood, passive voice. 
Okay, I want to talk about those three things. First is present tense, which means it's to be an ongoing reality. An ongoing reality, not a once-for-all-time event. Remember, Pentecost was a once-for-all-time event in the history of redemption. This call in Ephesians 5.18 to be filled with the Spirit is an ongoing reality. It's present tense, ongoing. So the continuous, ongoing aspect of being filled with the Holy Spirit, it involves day by day, moment by moment, submission to the Spirit's control and influence. You know, scholars point out that the, the Greek word that's translated be filled, it means more than merely, as I've already said, pouring, you know, pouring liquid into a cup to fill it all the way up to the top. A better way to understand what Paul means by be filled is to realize that same Greek word was used often of, of the wind filling the sail of a ship and therefore carrying the ship along the water. It was also used to describe the way that salt permeated meat in order to flavor and to preserve it. So hopefully you're starting to make some sense that Christians are directed by God's word to be carried along by, to be moved along in our Christian life by the Holy Spirit. That is to have the Holy Spirit so impact and permeate our lives that everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, is a material consequence of the Holy Spirit's influence, the Holy Spirit's direction, the Holy Spirit's control as we participate in our union with Christ. And this is to be an ongoing reality. It's the present tense. But it's also the imperative mood, which means it's a command that all Christians are called to obey. Third is passive voice. We do not feel ourselves. Rather, we receive the Spirit's fullness as we are filled with Him. So putting this all together, Sinclair Ferguson says this, Paul is carefully balancing two things. First, that we are active in the experience of feeling. God does not treat us as robots. But second, that this activity actually involves us being receptive, in that sense passive, so that we are filled with the Spirit. So we're commanded to be filled, but we do not fill ourselves. The Holy Spirit must fill us. Okay, but how does this happen? That's the second question. How are we to be filled with the Spirit? And to understand that, we, we want to we'll, we'll not only look at our passage in Ephesians, but there's a parallel passage in Colossians chapter 3. You see, Ephesians and Colossians are, are very similar. They were written about the same time. They were carried from Paul to the churches uh, by the same person, uh, Tychicus. Tychicus carried both of the letters both letters have many parallel passages, and there's a passage in Colossians 3 that's, that's very, very similar to our passage in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, so if you have a Bible, keep one finger on Ephesians 5, turn over to Colossians 3, I wonder, we have verses 16 and 17. They're very, very similar passages. They're a little bit different, but they're very, very similar. So I want to read both of them to you, beginning with our passage. Ephesians 5, verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So Paul says, you know, in that passage, there are two imperatives. Don't get drunk on wine. Do be filled with the Spirit. Then there are four uh, participles. 
to follow. You know, address one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Um, sing and uh, sing from your hearts to the Lord and praise to Him. You are to, to give thanks uh, to God in all times and all ways, and then you are to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, okay? So with that in your mind and your understanding, okay, listen now to this parallel passage in Colossians 3, verses 16 and 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see how these two passages are very helpful to look at side by side? See, Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. And he goes on to talk about, okay, what are the marks of one filled with the Spirit? And in Colossians 3, Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Then he goes on to talk about the marks of those who are laying the word of Christ well in you richly. And they're essentially the same. So the way in which we obey the command to be filled with the Spirit is not to seek some mystical, magical experience. Rather, it's read your Bible. Study your Bible. Make room in your life and make it a point to hear the Bible faithfully preached. Make every endeavor to, to obey the Bible. L listen to how the English pastor Ian Hamilton puts it. The way in which we obey the command to be filled with the Spirit is by responding to the Word of Christ, making room for its influence, giving our minds to its truth, our hearts to its teaching, and our wills to its obedience. The evidence that you are filled with the Spirit is that your whole life is shaped and directed by the Spirit-inspired Word of God. He goes on to say, I heard a sermon many years ago that captured this concept in these memorable words. With the Word alone, we dry up. Now, that's not to say that the Bible, that God's Word is not sufficient, because it is sufficient. The point he's making is that if we make our reading and our studying and our discussion of God's word, you know, merely a, an intellectual exercise. You know, it's, it's, we're going to dry up spiritually. We're not going to be growing and maturing the way we ought to. He goes on to say, with the spirit alone, we blow up. Put another way, that if we are trying to discern the spirit's leading and direction and, and guidance and we're trying to, to figure out, okay, what do the quivers in our livers mean and whether we should do this or do that, apart from serious study of God's Word and what God has clearly revealed in His Word, then we're headed to all kinds of problems, all kinds of troubles. Then he says, but with the Word and the Spirit together, we grow up. That's how we mature. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, be filled with the Spirit. There's nothing more powerful in the hearts and lives of the people of God than the Spirit of God moving and working through the Word of God. So, putting this together, how, how are you doing with this? Does the Word of Christ dwell in you richly? Does the Word of Christ dwell in your family, in your household, richly? Are you currently making room, making time for for the word of God's influence in your life? Are you giving your mind to its truth? Are you giving your heart to its teaching? 
Are you giving your will to its obedience? How are you doing with this? Or are there certain areas of your life that, that, that you keep trying to isolate and, and, in a sense, protect from the Spirit-inspired Word of God? Dear friends, stop, stop trying to pick and choose which parts of your life that you're going to, to submit to God's Word. Stop trying to pick and choose which parts of your life you're going to submit to God's Spirit. What Paul says is, be filled with the Spirit as you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the Spirit-inspired Word of God, the God-breathed Word, let it teach you and reprove you and correct you and train you in all the areas of your life so that you, the people of God, will be complete equipped for every good work. Okay, so what, what then does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? That's our third heading. What are the marks of a Spirit-filled church? Well, as I've already said, in our passage, there are two commands, two imperatives. Do not get drunk on wine. Be filled with the Spirit. Then there are four participles that follow. Addressing, singing, thanking, and submitting. Now, I'm persuaded that by this context of our passage, the first two, addressing and singing, are referring to corporate worship. Therefore, Paul says that if when we're being filled with the Spirit and the Word of Christ is dwelling in us richly, that we will be a worshiping church, we will be a thankful church, and we'll be a submitting church. And so I want us to look at each of those in turn. So first, we'll be a worshiping church. So look with me at verses 18 and 19 together. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So I think from this context that Paul's talking about your corporate worship in the local church. And so you look, look just at verse 19, and I want you to notice that we see in verse 19 that our singing and worship has, has two directions has a vertical direction, singing to the Lord, and it has a horizontal direction where we're singing or addressing one another. Can you see that? That our singing of worship, of course, is a vertical direction. We, we sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts, but our singing and worship also has a horizontal direction where we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs too. That we sing praises to our triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we address, we encourage, we exhort, we spur one another on as we sing. You see, maturing and growing Christians should delight to gather with God's people on the Lord's day to give the whole of themselves from the very depths of their beings in song to God, even if you don't like to sing. So even if outside of this room, you hate to sing, you wouldn't be caught dead singing, growing and maturing Christians should still love to gather here in this place with God's people on the Lord's day to sing from the depths of your being, from, from your heart to God in praise. I mean, even, even if you can't sing at all, even if you shouldn't be singing outside of this room, like, like me, I mean, if you can't carry a tune in a bucket, I mean... Listen, that's me. One of, the first, one of the first skill sets you have to have to work back there in the sound booth is to know when to mute my Okay, I mean, that, that's an important thing. But even if you hate to sing, even if you can't sing, you ought to delight to gather with God's people on the Lord's day 
to sing from, from the very depths of your being, the depths of your heart and soul to God in praise. But while we sing praises from the depths of our hearts to God, we're also addressing one another. We're also exhorting one another, encouraging one another, spurring one another on as we sing. I mean, do, do you realize that's happening each and every Lord's Day in this sanctuary? That's happening. You know, Alicia and I have been here for 15 years, and uh, 15 very happy years, and Lord willing, we'll be here for many decades to come. But there have been many times when Alicia has you know, come home from church on a Sunday afternoon and told me, you know, Richard, I was, I don't know if you noticed so-and-so singing, but I was so, I was so encouraged by the way that they sang and the way they worshiped, you know, because of this or that, that, that has happened in their life or is happening in their life. You know, and, and I, I mean, listen, I, I know that I, I can't even possibly know all of the the hard things that you've gone through, that you are going through, the pain, the loss, the, the discouragement, the disappointment, all those things. But don't you realize that, that the people in this room, people who know you, who love you, who've been sharing your burdens with you, been praying for you, that whenever you're here, whenever you show up and you're pouring out your heart to God in worship, at the same time, you're ministering to one another. You're encouraging and exhorting and spurring one another on. Listen again to how another quote from Ian Hamilton. He says, Christian worship that flows from a spirit-filled life is never self-centered and certainly is not self-preoccupied. It is worship that is marked by the family spirit of mutual encouragement. We come before God not as a collection of disparate individuals, Though we come with our unique individuality, we come to worship as the people of God, the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, with that in your minds, listen again to how, what Paul says in Ephesians 5.19. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. All of that's happening each and every Lord's Day in the sanctuary. Now, perhaps as you look at verse 19, you think, okay, well, Richard, I know what psalms are, okay, but, but, but what, what, what are these, these hymns and these spiritual songs? Well, it's a good question. There's always a lot of debate about that. Well, and, and when you combine verse 19 in Ephesians 5 with what we read in Colossians 3, verse 16 about letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly, then I think it's a very, very sound strategy to adopt as your philosophy of worship that as a church... You're going to seek to put as much Bible as you possibly can in every worship service. To put as much Bible as you can between the call to worship and the benediction. Put another way, I think it's a sound strategy to have your philosophy of worship be, when we gather on the Lord's Day, we are going to read the Bible and pray the Bible and sing the Bible and hear the Bible preached and we're going to see the Bible in the sacraments. Because every church has to make decisions about singing this song or that song. And for us, the primary, though not the only, but the primary factor in our song and hymn selection is whether or not the words to the song or the words to the hymn are clearly, unmistakably, biblically faithful and theologically orthodox. 
You know, we ask, okay, is there rich, deep, true theology expressed clearly and unmistakably in these lyrics? So put another way, even if a song is very, very singable and, and quite popular, but, but I sit around with assistant pastors associate, and, and, and ministry staff, and, and I'll let each of them, I'll let several of them look at the lyrics, and then I ask them to explain to me what this song is about. If I get five or six different explanations, you know what? That's probably not a song we're going to sing. If we can't tell without a doubt, okay, what is this song talking about? It's, that's not clearly and unmistakably biblically faithful. It's not clearly and unmistakably theologically, theological orthodox. You see, and it matters. It matters what songs we sing to the Lord. It matters what songs we address and encourage and exhort one another with. I mean, it matters what and how I and our pastors preach to you. But, but there's a real sense in which no matter what we preach, no matter how faithful that is, that, that our church's theology is, is never going to rise above the theology, the depth of theology and faithfulness of the songs that we sing. You know, Ligon Duncan put it this way, your church's theology will never rise above the theology of the songs you sing and worship. You see, maturing and growing Christians should delight to gather with God's people on the Lord's day to give the whole of themselves from the very depths of their beings in song to God as they encourage and exhort and address and spur one another on. See, Paul says that if and when we're being filled with the Spirit and letting the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, we're going to be a worshiping church. Second, he says, we'll be a thankful church. So look, look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the maturing, growing, spirit-filled Christian life is marked by gratitude and thankfulness rather than grumbling and complaining. I mean, look at verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God. Now, I know that's a challenging verse to read because, because I know that you know life is hard. But guess what? The Apostle Paul also knew that life was hard. You know, remember, he wrote Ephesians from a prison cell. And while in chains, Paul wrote, giving thanks always and for everything to God. So how is that possible? Well, it's only possible if you believe that God is good. That that's one of your convictions. A rock-solid, firm, foundational conviction. John Calvin put it this way, the innumerable benefits which we receive from God yield fresh calls of joy and thanksgiving. Even whenever things are impossibly hard. You see, Paul and Calvin are men who have the conviction that God is absolutely good. I mean, think about what our shorter catechism, question four says, in response to the question, what is God? It says, God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable, and there's several of his attributes, but one of them is goodness. That God is infinite, eternal, unchangeable in his goodness. 
So one last quote from Ian Hamilton. He says, this goodness was seen in the giving of his son to be the savior of the world and in his blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. We will never rise to giving thanks always and for everything until we are similarly persuaded that God is absolutely good. Our thanksgiving may be through tears, maybe through unrelieved perplexity, but it will be all the more real for that. You see, dear Christian, no matter what you have gone through, no matter what you're currently going through, and I know I can't possibly know how difficult it has been, how, diff- how impossibly difficult it currently is, but if you're in Christ, no matter what you have been or are going through, you always have reason for thanksgiving to God, at the very least, because he sent Christ. The very least because he sent Christ to take on flesh for you. To live a perfect, sinless life for you. To die on Calvary's cross for you. To rise from the grave so that you would be raised to new life. So that your sins would be washed away. Completely, utterly forgiven. Removed as far from you as the east is from the west. So that you will be clothed, robed in Christ's righteousness. So that you would be born again. Raised to new life, to walk in newness of life. Given a new heart. Indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You see, the maturing, growing, spirit-filled Christian life is marked by gratitude and thankfulness rather than grumbling, negativity, complaining. See, Paul says that if and when we're being filled with the Spirit, we'll be a worshiping church, we'll be a thankful church. And the last thing he says, we'll be a submitting church. Look at verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reference for Christ. Okay, so to submit literally means to, to line yourself under, to, to arrange oneself under. Now, as Axel preached on Monday, Thursday, a couple of weeks ago, in the church, in the family of God's people, service of others, even trying to outserve one another, and not any status that we can claim for ourselves, but service of others, that's, that's the mark of greatness. It's the mark of maturity. See, the maturing, growing, spirit-filled Christian knows that his life is not about, her life is not about being served by others, but about serving others. I mean, remember what Jesus said in, in Matthew 20, verses 27 and 28, whoever will be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, submitting to one another and serving one another I know, I know, can be, can be, can feel like it's one of the hardest things that God's Word calls us to do. I know that's the case. I've been alive long enough. I've been married long enough. I've been a a daddy long enough. I've been your pastor long enough to know that submitting to one another, serving one another, as opposed to insisting on being served, can be one of the hardest things that God's Word calls us to do. But we are called to do it And we do it out of reverence for Christ. That we're called to do it remembering and being motivated by how Christ first loved us. How he first served us. 
and gave his life for us to save us. I mean, listen to how John Calvin beautifully puts this. God has bound us so strongly to each other. Right? We've been talking about this throughout Ephesians, that we're, we're not just individuals here in this room, but we're now a new family, adopted sons and daughters, that we're now a new temple being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. God has, so, has bound us so strongly to each other that no man or woman ought to endeavor to avoid subjection. And where love reigns, there is mutual servitude. Christians trying to outserve one another. I do not accept even kings and governors whose very authority is held for the service of the community. See, within the church, even positions of leadership are servant leadership. Even positions of authority are so that you can serve the church. It is highly proper that all should be exhorted to be subject to each other in their turn. But then he says, he's a wise pastor here, but as nothing is more contrary to the human spirit than to submit to others, it's hard. He directs us to, to the fear of Christ. So that we may not refuse the yoke and can humble our pride, that we may not be ashamed of serving our neighbors, even when nobody sees it, even when you don't get credit for it, even when there's no pats on the back. That's hard. But imagine, what if we, what if we were a church like that? I mean, imagine the difference it would make in, in your life, in your family, in our church, if we endeavored to be filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit as we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. As Lord's Day after Lord's Day, we encouraged and exhorted and spurred one another on through our heartfelt praise and worship to the Lord. I mean, imagine how different we and our families and our church would be if our lives were marked by thanksgiving and gratitude rather than negativity and grumbling and complaining. What if our lives were marked by servanthood rather than grasping for status? And imagine if each and every one of us made it our aim, made it our great ambition that we're going to outserve one another out of reverence for Christ. You see, this passage is about the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the Christian's life. And so simply put, the maturing, growing, Spirit-filled Christian life is marked by growing and all the fruit of the Spirit. All the fruit of the Spirit that are listed in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. See, growing in these things, I mean, this is how we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. I mean, this is what it means to be imitators of God as his beloved children. It's what it means to, to walk in love, to walk as children of light, to walk not as unwise, but as wise, to be filled with the Spirit. And here's the thing, this is a high calling, but it's possible as God works in our heart 
through his word, by his spirit. So please join me as we pray and ask God to do in us what we cannot do for ourselves. Let's pray. Father, we find this, these four little verses so very challenging. We desire, Father, to be continuously filled with your Spirit, under the Spirit's influence and control and direction, submitted to him as your word dwells richly in us. Lord, please help us to make room in our lives, in our calendars, in our homes, in our hearts for the, for the reading and the study and the preaching of your word. And we give our, our wills to, to obeying your word, not to earn anything from you, but because we desire to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. Lord, may we be a church that is marked by faithful biblical worship, singing praises to you, but also addressing and exhorting and encouraging and spurring one another on to love and good deeds each and every Lord's Day. May we be a thankful church marked by gratitude, thanksgiving. May we be a church that's marked by mutual submission to one another, eager, eager to forego status and the podium and the accolades the pats on the back in order to simply outserve one another to meet needs to do good ministry father we cannot we will not do this on our own we pray that you would work in our hearts by your spirit through your word do in us what we cannot do in ourselves we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.